Well, last Sunday we woke to hear, didn't we, the awful news that so-called Easter worshippers and residents at luxury hotels had been mercilessly bombed to death throughout Sri Lanka. It's interesting, isn't it? The media really struggled, didn't it? Uh, to even acknowledge that the majority target were Christians. They were now Easter worshippers. Of course, they're trying to hold back the horrifying reality that brothers and sisters, Christians, are being systematically slaughtered by numerous secular and religious groups around the world. Now, of course, every single one of those 253 that died is a tragedy against humanity. The question I want to ask, though, is where is God when all that is happening to his people? Maybe some even want to question their faiths when they hear such awful news. I wonder, do you? I mean, you've got to ask the question, do you? As those Sri Lankans, though they've been asked not to go back to church uh, this week, um, are they thinking as they're sat at home, is it worth it? Sometimes God works or seemingly chooses not to work in ways that we kind of see fit for the situation. And often we can find ourselves, therefore, really confused. Maybe you might say even perplexed. By God. Hence the introductory point on your sheets there. Looking back over the years, I can recall, uh, in my time in ministry, I can recall a friend uh, calling me a number of years ago. My light-hearted high was met with a very sober reply. The baby's dead. I remember going to see that couple. And we prayed together, and we read God's word together, seeking answers and comfort. And to a degree, of course, that was helpful. But ultimately, beyond the excruciating pain of losing a baby midterm, they were confused. They were confused with God. And answers weren't clear. But that is the reality of relationship with God, with a perfect God, when we are so weak and so easily confused and so finite, and He is eternal. In reality, you see, true faith often finds itself just putting your hands up like that silly emoji that someone sent me the other day. You know, like, just, what? Confused. More than that, sometimes we find that God's answers provoke even more questions for our faith. And perhaps too often we do turn to the wisdom of the world for answers, but we know from 1 Corinthians 3.19 that the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. I wonder, are you sometimes confused with God? You're seeking answers for various elements of your life and the world around you. And perhaps in that you're just finding more problems, more questions, more perplexity. And it's this confused, perplexed questioning of God that dominates this short letter called, I've always called it Habakkuk. But it's got a double K, so it must be Habakkuk. Which is, I think, what the Americans say. Is, yes, I'm getting the nod there, so it must be right. Okay. But what do we know about this book? Well, very little, really. Yeah, he's probably the least described of all the prophets in the Bible. His father, his tribe, his home, they're not mentioned. 
Now, Jewish literature has, actually has him down as the one who brings food uh, to the great prophet Daniel when he's in the lion's den. Now, we can speculate, but he, he probably was a professional uh, temple prophet with a flair for music, given that chapter 3 is a song. Now, in one sense, Habakkuk doesn't really matter. It's the unique word that he brings that really matters because unlike any other prophet, he's, he's unique in this because prophets usually speak for God to the people. And Habakkuk flips it the whole the other way around. He speaks to God about the people. Habakkuk is clearly a brave man because he takes it on himself to work in that other direction. He calls God to account when his actions don't seem to correspond to his character, when God is just confusing. And so the, the book of Habakkuk is essentially structured around these brave, these brave kind of honest appeals to God for answers. Uh, have a look down in your Bibles. You'll see in this little subheadings, they're not the Bible, but they're helpfully put there. So you see Habakkuk's complaint, the Lord's answer, the second complaint and the Lord's answer. It's structured around this conversation. Each time the Lord, and when you see Lord, by the way, in capitals, that's referring to his covenant name, Yahweh. And each time that the Lord answers, and as we'll see, the answer may not be what Habakkuk wants to hear. Now that's the structure of chapter 1 and 2. If you flip across to chapter 3, you'll see that there, Habakkuk is drawn to praise God in prayer and song. He doesn't have all the answers, but he trusts the one who does have all the answers and he rests in his sovereign care. Praising God. Uh, let's get down to our passage today. It's broken up to a series of quandaries. I put them there on your sheets. There's four, I think. As Habakkuk questions God and seeks answers. The first thing Habakkuk deals with is the silence of God and human evil. The silence of God and human evil. See, the problem for Habakkuk here is that there is violence without any justice within Judah. That's, you know, that's God's place, his kingdom, okay? Look at verse 2. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you. Violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? And it goes on and on. Now, the place Judah, that's the southern smaller kingdom uh, in, in the south of Israel, the time, probably in the latter part of 600 BCs, so about 626, 10-ish. It makes sense that it's then because it's before Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to power. And it must be before 587 BC because that's when the temple in Jerusalem is finally sacked. And that is the conquest that this letter is anticipating. So it must come before then. But have you heard the issue? Habakkuk's not happy because within the very covenant people of God, within their culture, their place, it's dangerous to live. Violence, he says twice. There's, viol there's violence. God's, there's injustice is rife. People are getting abused. It's before us, he says in verse three. 
Now, the severity of the opposition is indicated by the number of descriptions. Look at them. Injustice, wrong, destruction, violence, strife, conflict. Uh, So we hear two questions from Habakkuk to God. Firstly, Habakkuk picks up lamenting language, like in the Psalms. How long, God? How long until you bring justice? I thought you were a just God. How long till you bring it to this situation that we're having to live in? God, God delaying to save his own people. It's being questioned here. Second question is just simply why? Why, God? Why don't you do something? See, God's inactivity is being brought into question here. Now, this is such an issue for our times, isn't it? As I mentioned at the beginning, violence and injustice towards God's people. Sri Lanka, Syria, China, North Korea, the list could go on and on and on. And it's getting longer all the time. All the time our media refuses to report and our politicians from all sides will not speak out or act against. What for any other people group would be called a genocide. But without Christ, that response should not surprise us. If you have a decent doctrine or understanding of sin, you should not be surprised by Sri Lanka. The new labour camps for Christians in China. None of this should surprise you. Oh, we should be saddened. Massively saddened. Brothers and sisters are being slaughtered and the world will do nothing. But I pray that we don't become sedated by the amount of violence. We should weep at the brutal murders of so many who simply are targeted because they trust Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. But the one thing that we should not be is surprised. Interestingly, the concern in Habakkuk is specifically the wicked within Judah. That's actually within God's covenant people in that land. It's, it's like people in the church. They're the wicked ones who are oppressing the righteous within, as you see in verse 4. And we know from other prophets, for example, in Micah chapter 2 and 3, that this kind of thing was going on. That people were pressing others for their loans uh, to repay. Maybe they were struggling to make a payment so they would lose their homes completely, their lands, perhaps their inheritance. Oh, this was, of course, legal, often subtle, but sometimes not. Sometimes violent injustice just took place. And all this is happening against the faithful people of Judah. And do you know what? As I've said already, things haven't changed. People use their power again and again and again to oppress the righteous people of God. God's faithful people throughout history have faced violence under the rule of power again and again. Do you know there is a Christian martyred in India every minute? In Turkey, a democratic, pseudo-democratic, shall we call it, European state... Churches are being burnt to the ground and maliciously reoppressed on the completion. Why? Because they're Christians? 
Now, do you think they'll get any justice? Do you think that we will dare as a country, as a government, as a European Union, ever to speak out? No. Often the police just look the other way. The Myanmar army are still using Christian women and children of the Karen people as minesweepers on their fields. If they blow, get blown up, they're only a Christian. Violence against the faithful people of Judah, that is the problem. And Habakkuk, what does he do? He prays. He prays. He pours out his heart in pain on behalf of the faithful who were getting trodden on by the powerful. He prays. And what does that tell us about prayer? See, prayer is not the place to escape our confusion about God. Prayer is the place to express our confusion about God. How long? Why? Prayer may actually not lead you to a greater peace. It can, but it's not always the case. Prayer can lead you to more anguish, to more confusion. But God shows us here that prayer is the place to bring that confusion when he works, or seemingly doesn't work, to resolve pain and violence. I wonder, look back in your prayer life. It should be a catalogue of how longs and whys. First problem, the silence of God and and human evil. Let's uh, look at the second problem, second point on your sheets there, verses 5 to 11. The sovereignty of God and human arrogance. Now the problem for Habakkuk here is that what God says in response to his prayer is shocking. Look at verse 5 and 6. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe. Even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians. That ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. And do you see? Do you see what God is saying there? He's saying this to his own people, Judah, as the yous, actually, in verse 5, are plural. God is saying, this is not just for Habakkuk. This is huge, what he's saying. Judah, my people, you will be utterly amazed. It's happening now, in your days. This isn't something you can put aside for the next generation. It's coming now, and it's so big that they wouldn't believe it, even if they were told it. It's like you coming up to me and saying, oh yeah, by the way, I've got £10 billion for you, okay? It's too big. It's too incomprehensible. It's it's unbelievable. You couldn't do it. And God is saying to his people, the Babylonians are on the way. The Babylonians at this stage, given the date of this recording, they were actually not that big. Babylon swallowed them up. Uh, and became what is known in history as the Neo-Babylonians. But even then they were not the superpower that they ended up as. Rather than awe, the response of God's people is actually likely to be surprised at this point. The Babylonians, really? It's like saying Luxembourg is going to be, going to be the superpower in the world in 15 years' time. Be utterly amazed, verse 5. The Babylonians will come, and they did. 
The fall of the Assyrians at Nineveh begins the empire growth in 612 BC. And in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar wins his great battle at Carchemish, yeah? Against the Egyptians. And then the three deportations or exiles of Judah to Babylon begin. It happened. In answer to Habakkuk's prayer, God did bring judgment. But not in a specific or limited way. That is, to just, to just the oppressors in Judah. No, God raises up, verse 6, the Babylonians, what to do? To destroy Judah. And history shows us they did. It was torn to shreds. Now the Babylonians are described in great detail. They're ruthless. They love to conquer, seizing places not their own, verse 6. They're dreaded, well-equipped, verse 7 and 8. And uh, they're supremely arrogant in verse 10. They deride and scoff. They laugh at rulers as no defence can withstand their might. And in their arrogance, they love themselves, in verse 11. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. That is, they trust themselves in their supreme military might, which tells us one day that they too will be judged. For we all need to trust in God alone rather than ourselves. But what is God saying here? What he is saying is that he can and he will use in his sovereignty even the most arrogant of nations to bring about a just judgment on those who have ignored him, even his own beloved covenant people. I guess it isn't what Habakkuk had in mind, and nor do we, when we cry out to God, how long, God, and why? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher um, from Westminster Chapel in the 90s or 60s, 70s, just up the road here in St. James's, uh, he commented on these verses and he says, Notice how often God gives unexpected answers to your prayers. Then when God does answer... What he says is even more mysterious than his apparent failure to listen to our prayers. See, we all, I think, tend to tell God how. Do you do that? You start your prayers and you go, oh, by the way, God, I'm going to pray this. And uh, this is how you do it, by the way. Don't want to patronise you at all. Eternal, you know, kind of omnipotent God. But this is how you need to answer my prayers in my way. Maybe I'm the only one like that. We kind of write the script for God, don't we, sometimes? But look here, God is not saying, I'm raising up some from within you to deal with this kind of level of injustice within the, uh, the people of Judah. No, he's raising up the arrogant Babylonians. And they will crush, and they did crush Judah in judgment. So second uh, quandary is the sovereignty of God and human arrogance. Third one is the worship of God and human hope. Look with me at verse 12. If, if you're struggling, it's warm in here today, isn't it? If, if, just look at verse 12. This is, the, in a sense, the centre of the passage. Habakkuk responds to what the Lord has told him. Verse 12, Lord, you are, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Now, Habakkuk, you see, resigns himself to sovereignty of God. The Babylonians will come. More questions will be raised. But in verse 12, before Habakkuk begins his second complaint to God, he takes breath. He's confused, yes, even troubled. 
But in this moment, amidst his worry, what does he do? He worships God. As one writer put it, I thought it was so helpful, he lingers and keeps his trouble in the arena of worship. Even at these uh, difficult times, Habakkuk does the right thing. He turns back to God. He trusts God in worship, reminding himself of God and his nature and his character. Praising God for what he knows to be true. Despite not knowing the answers that he longs for. And too often I find we can forget this as we focus in on ourselves rather than God in difficult times. But why should we do this? Why worship God when he seemingly is the cause of our confusion? Well, simply because in God, in his character, there is hope. Everywhere else we look will be hopeless. Troubles come and the first thing that we're inclined to do is is to run, to bolt from God, isn't it? Blame God. Shake up puny fists at God. Well, look what Habakkuk does. He remembers God. And he worships God. He remembers that God is a historical God. Lord, are you not from everlasting? Habakkuk remembers that God has always, throughout history, provided for his undeserving people. For example, you know, you look back from the, uh, in, in Exodus, from slavery to kind of release. Habakkuk looks to the past and therefore has hope now. Secondly, he remembers that God is a personal God because he is my God. See that in verse 12? He is my God, my Holy One. And thirdly, he remembers that God is also the revealing God, for he reveals himself and his plans to his people. Oh Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. God shows them what he intends. He reveals his will. He's a solid God. You are my rock. You have ordained them to punish. He's a rock that will establish these plans of judgment. What a list to recall as he worships God. With this impending judgment coming. But I want you to just, just look to the centre of verse 12. Here's the hope. Lord are you not from everlasting. My God my Holy One. You the plural there. Will never die. And we think. And you look on your footnote. You'll see it says. It often translated we there. I think that's more accurate. We will never die. You see the faithful who remain, despite lack of answers at this stage and the Babylonian conquest to come, they can still cry out, we will not die. Habakkuk is reminding himself and the faithful that they will not die. God's faithful covenant people will not completely be wiped from the face of the earth. We will not die It's not the answer that Habakkuk came to God for, but as Habakkuk looks through God's character, it is all the assurance that he needs. In this moment of worship, he shows us how we too should deal with difficult times, and I know some of you are. He shows us not to dwell on the violence and the lack of answers. Worshipping God is not an escape from our problems. In fact, sometimes it just raises more. But worshipping God brings perspective. For we see 
even in the midst of problem and confusion and trouble and suffering, that we will not die. And there's the assurance. Supremely now in Christ dying on the cross for our sins, in our place. That's, in a sense, the new covenant promise that brings hope. Uh, We will not die because, why? Christ has defeated death. We, We celebrated that last week, didn't we? The great Adoniram Judson, I, I'm sure you'd be bored of him, uh, given I he's one of my great heroes. He took the gospel to Burma, now Myanmar, who lived in appalling conditions and faced death weekly. He wrote these words. We need not fear death, though it come in the most shocking form. For death is only a withdrawing of the veil which conceals his dearest friend. We will not die because Christ is in the resurrection business for us. But in those hard times, let us be reminded that endless requests to God, taking, uh, talking with friends over a drink, uh, you know, all of those things are good and appropriate things to do. However, remember, we must remember that our primary goal when we face struggle and problems should be to get on our knees and pray. Remembering God for all That he is and what he has done. Let us not use God in our prayers and bring him a script. Let's adore him. And verse 12 is a help and a hope for us here, I think. Lastly then, the character of God in human history. Verses 13 uh, through to 17. The problem for Habakkuk here is God's Babylonian solution. Habakkuk seems to think God's plan is probably flawed from his perspective. He even thinks, look at verse 14 and 15, and it's kind of like subhuman. The Babylonians seem to battle and conquest as if their enemies are like kind of fish. They're godless and idolatrous in verse 16. They sacrifice to their nets. They're relentless, verse 17. They go on in their destruction of nations. It's just brutal. And if you look at the history books... Well, we know of the Babylonians, that is completely true. But Habakkuk's biggest problem comes in verse 13. It seems so wrong and unfair that the evil Babylonians can crush Judah. At at least Judah has some kind of relationship with God, some profession of faith. And Habakkuk, you see what he's doing here? He's making a kind of a relative judgment. He's not saying Judah's perfect. But how can God use an evil and treacherous nation like the Babylonians to come and destroy Judah? There's no answer at this point, which is rather frightening. Let me summarise, if I can, what we learn here, I think. The principle is God is not dependent on human history and power God's character always prevails and his sovereign will always prevails. And God is not above using a more wicked nation or a people group to judge a less wicked nation or people group. Great Britain, the United States and South Africa well represented here today. And any other strong nations of the world with their many Christians in the population one day 
may be gone. They may be struck off the face of the earth. But God's plans won't be thwarted. God could bring judgment on this country. He may bring it via a a more wicked and evil people group. What might God say in verse 6 today? Who might he raise up to bring judgment? Oh, we can only guess. He could. But the character of God rules over human history. And what should our response be? I, I really want us to just leave today just going, I'm humbled. Because I think that's where the passage leads us. To humility. But let's finish if we can on, on chapter 2 verse 1. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. And what answer I am to give to this complaint. You see what Habakkuk's doing here? He simply waits. He waits for an answer. For truth. For, for revelation from God. The point is, you see, in our problems and in our struggles, our confusion about the way God has ordained things, perhaps in our lives, perhaps in a macro level as well, what is he saying? He's just simply saying, wait. Wait patiently. And it's all we can do. And what we've heard from God, I hope you realise, is enough. What we've heard today in this passage is enough. Chapter 1 verse 12 is enough. It's enough for today and it's enough for tomorrow and for, for the next tomorrow. We will not die. It's enough. Because everything else is secondary. And it may not feel that way in your current trouble or struggle or suffering or your confusion with God but it is enough and therefore wait patiently Lord are you not from everlasting my God my holy one we will never die let's pray as we close